Hello, welcome to the Fit Finance Sessions. This is our all new and very first podcast. My name is Charlie Redding. I'm the Managing Director of Efficient Portfolio. Uh, and the Fit Finance Sessions is really about trying to talk about a different theme uh, around your money each month, just to try and help you improve uh, your own financial situation, but also understand more about your own financial situation. Uh, I'm joined here today by Tim Webb, who is one of the financial planners at Efficient Portfolio. We've got Henry, who's a chartered financial planner at Efficient Portfolio. We've got Tom, who's a financial planner at Efficient Portfolio. And we've got Toby Colton, who is our senior power planner here at Efficient Portfolio. And we wanted to kick off the, the Fit Finance sessions with a, uh, a, a highly... Um, motivating theme, something that uh, gets uh, the blood boiling for some people, and that is politics. What impact does politics have on your finances? Because, of course, it could have lots of different impact. I mean, I've seen, for example, um, I've been giving advice for 19 years, and over that 19 years, in the lead up to almost every budget I've seen in a newspaper somewhere that oh, they could well get rid of uh, tax-free cash from pensions in this budget. And over the years, I've seen several clients uh, ha- have um, you know, take their tax-free cash earlier than they really wanted to and earlier than they were probably going to be advised to purely because they were fearing that, that um, politics and changes in legislation and changes in governments were going to scrap the tax-free cash. Um, so... I'll throw it out to the to the guys. Um, what other examples have you seen where politics have has um, has changed the way people have managed their money? Henry, I know that actually you mentioned it before um, around the lifetime allowance. What have you seen in client situations there? Yeah, Charlie, I used to do quite a lot of work with with doctors who are part of the NHS pension scheme and and really this started I suppose probably as long far back as 2011-2012 when the lifetime allowance reached its peak at 1.8 million and then they started to to reduce the level of of, um, pension savings that you could accrue. Some of the senior doctors within the NHS pension scheme had managed to create pensions getting up close to that 1.8 million pound mark so certainly a lot of the advice that we were giving around that time was whether or not they should be taking out fixed protection and some of the other protections they might have taken out prior to that. A lot of their concern, because it was never very clear and has never been made clear by governments as to what the future direction of pension strategies is going to be. Um, and so we saw a number of doctors who were getting towards their late 50s, but still two, three, four years before their 60th birthday and, and when they would ordinarily have collected their pension, start to approach me and, and discuss whether or not taking their pension benefits early would be a sensible way forward. Their concern being primarily whether or not the lifetime allowance would be reduced much further and much more quickly and therefore reduce the tax-free cash and indeed the pension that they would collect, the net benefits of the pension that they would collect going forward. Um, in some respects, of course, that proved prudent because it did go from 1.8 down to 1 million then over the course of the next six years. Um, but what it did mean, though, was a whole lot of doctors were retiring early. 
What it did mean was a whole load of doctors retiring early, reducing or increasing the strain on the NHS. Yes. To be fair, quite a lot of those doctors also had private practices, so there were still there were still medics out there, but they weren't working in, in the hospitals. But perhaps they were. Paid. In fact, it's, it's an interesting point actually because I was on a uh, a, uh, a web TV show with uh, Steve Webb, the former pensions minister, and he was saying when that change came in to reduce the lifetime allowance, uh, he was the he was the pensions minister at the time. And the first he found out, first time he found out about that pension change, that change to the legislation, was the day it was announced on the budget. He did not know about it as the pensions minister, because that legislation change was driven by the revenue, it wasn't driven by the pensions minister. And so the, that's one of the problems I think that we have with politics, is that the left arm is, doesn't know what the right arm's doing. You know, the, the revenue saying, we want to generate more tax from pensions, let's reduce the lifetime allowance, and the pensions minister says, well... Yeah, but if we do that, we end up with a whole load of doctors retiring. We're already short of senior doctors. And I think it's something that you see quite often in the press, actually, that before every uh, budget that comes along, there's a whole lot of um, ideas that the press make as to whether or not lifetime allowances will be reduced or whether or not tax rates and tax reliefs on pensions will be increased or how much you can save into pensions. And it's all a lot of guesswork. Um, and there's not an awful lot of forward guidance that's ever given by governments, which means that a lot of the advice that we have to provide has to be very reactive in it, in a sense. And we can't make long-term plans for what governments might um, do in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you guys had other conversations around trying to guess what the changes are going to be in the future? Uh, yeah, and I think it's, it's it's always going to be easier in terms of political capital to knock higher earners or knock... Uh, lifetime allowance and, and things like that than it is to change or actually solve the problem such as VAT reform or uh, a wider tax um, on, on on the public in general. So I think depending on your client and, and who it is, then they're going to, some are going to be more subject to that than, than, than the, the rest of the, uh, the, the country. But... I think it depends how close you are to needing to make a decision. If you're five, six, seven years away, then you, sometimes you have to run the gauntlet a, a little bit. If you're within a year or two of making that decision, then sometimes a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And I think yeah. that's that's the conversation you have to have with the client. I think particularly members of the NHS scheme or teacher scheme or any of these well-funded uh, defined benefit schemes sometimes even if they are above the lifetime allowance as much as it's not as tax efficient as it has been it's still better for them to sometimes stay within the scheme and it's better to be making two percent rather than 20 percent mm. um so it's but if you're now only making two percent you sit there and go well i'm working pretty hard for my two percent as opposed to 20 so yeah do i bother well, it's, it's better than no percent, and I mm. think it's I think it's for them. It's it doesn't sound tax efficient on paper, but sometimes yeah, going going through with it. But maybe that has the discussion of should I just retire early, like a lot of these doctors, mm. and go well, I've I've been working the last thirty forty years. Is it really worth it if I'm not um, getting the same reward out of doing it? Not just financially, but um, I think work-life balance and a lot of these other things start to come into it and actually going down to a few days a week can help. So. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I've often thought with, you know, speaking to a lot of clients in the lead-up to retirement, uh, like I've got some, you know, very senior medical people uh, that 
you think you know, they've just got to the point in their career where they, they are the experts. You know, they're being dragged into courtrooms because they're the experts to testify on different things. And yet, so anything you can do to keep them involved has surely got to be a good thing for the country as a whole. And yet, actually, they're being encouraged, incentivized to clear off early and we lose that expertise that much earlier. So it does seem that, that it, it, it's, it's slightly counterintuitive. I think you find with, some, with the NHS Trust and some of the experience that we had that, that actually the financial constraints that some of them are under at the moment, this is not a, that some of the senior employees in the NHS weren't unhappy that their senior chaps were leaving because they were such a drain on the resources of the department, yeah. and especially as the, the contributions that the employers were making towards their pension schemes at, uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 12% of their earnings was just another layer of expense that the senior consultants added to the cost of running running the, the trusts. And so actually them leaving was, was a great weight off their mind because they could probably bring in two junior consultants for the same price. Yeah, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a wider political problem in the fact that how do you justify that a doctor only makes however much they make compared to a fund manager or some of the other people we might see through, through our work. And I think... Yeah, it's, that's, that's the age-old problem is that you've got to remunerate them enough to stay and keep their skills. And um, uh, I don't think tax changes as much as it affects those people in that gap. There's a whole load of other people who um, are affected as well at the same time. Yeah. And, and what other things have we seen, have you guys seen, talked about in terms of um, potential changes, you know, rumours around changes or... Or uh, uh, for, you know, particularly pensions. Pension seems to be the area that everybody, uh, uh, you know, the politics po- po- and politicians love attacking and playing around with and tinkering. Because for me, it's it's a very long term thing, and yet they're more focused on the short term in the next four or five years. And um, so, anything else that you guys can think of that, that have seen, you know, talked about in terms of p- potential changes that have or haven't have happened. I think. I think. Probably at the other end of the spectrum um, from doctors and, and DB pension schemes um, is estate pension. Um, you know, some people that's their, their primary source of income. Um, we're looking at further increases to that. So, um, you know, that, that's going to drastically impact on, um, on individuals and, and on the economy. I think it's the largest um, state benefit at the moment. And with people living longer, that's, that's going to be a longer spend. For the, for the British economy going forward. Um, with that in mind, I think that there's going to be um, more focus on personal pensions and who knows what the future holds with regards to the state pension moving forward. I know there's, there's been a question as to whether um, tax-free cash should be reduced from 25% with personal pensions or potentially abolished altogether. Um, personally, I think that's just just political rhetoric. rhetoric. I don't think that... Um, that actually look to make any drastic changes um, with regards to the tax-free cash, purely because there's going to be a greater allowance on personal pensions going forward. I think to maintain the state pension and whether the triple lock survives or not, I think whilst that might may stay there in, in its form or various versions of that form, the tax will have to come from somewhere and it's the knock-on effect of, well, if we want to maintain the state pension, then either income tax will rise or VAT will rise or there'll be removal of other tax relief such as inheritance tax relief on business 
qualifying assets and, and, and various other things. And I think that's, uh, I think they want to keep it normal for, I guess, most people, but I see other forms of taxation being increased to, to counteract that because we can't continue with deficit levels and things like that. And you can only cut public spending so, so much. I think we're kind of getting to the point of where that's sort of starting to fizzle out and it's where else do you get the money from. But they clearly don't like pensions that much, do they? I mean, one of the reasons why they brought in the lifetime ISA is, is so that they can kind of creep towards, you know, whether they scrap higher rate tax relief in the future or, you know, they prefer the, we want the tax upfront model as opposed to the deferred taxation of the pension app, don't they? Well, so would you as a, as a person, yeah. you'd like the money up front rather than in 30, 40 years time as well. And I think it's the same for the government. They've got a problem now. And if they can get the money in now, rather than 20, 30 years' time when it's probably going to be a less of a tax take then they'll do what they can to do. So. I think it's interesting because I think a government still needs to um, protect its elderly insofar as they need to have enough money. And, and that's done in, in part through having this, the state pension there as a, as a safety net, but equally they then also want to encourage additional, additional savings into personal pensions, which is clearly where auto-enrolment has come in. I think the other thing that one has to accept is that I think the statistic is something along the lines of the top 10% collect 90% of the tax relief for pensions. And from a, from a point of view of whether or not that's fair, to most people it won't seem fair. And so if that does mean that bringing in a flat rate of tax relief happens, I could see being quite sensible because it actually promotes additional tax relief to basic rate taxpayers. Incentivising them. Incentivising them more. And it still provides some tax relief to higher rate or additional rate taxpayers. So it makes it still worthwhile putting some money into their pension. You have to make a question, don't you? If, if that does come into force, then you know, they're promoting people in the, the lower end of the, the earnings scale putting money into pensions and that type of thing, then whether or not they would touch the tax free cash, as you say, John, it's been threatened now for 19 odd years, 20 odd years. Why they then encourage savings into pensions only to penalise you when you take money on the way out? So it's kind of chicken and situation. I think it is. You're absolutely right. It is constantly, uh, they seem to give, give with one hand and take with two others, if that's yeah. possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, it, I think it is challenging. And I think, you know, if, if they did um, scrap higher rate tax relief, then I think it'd be really harsh not to readdress the, the annual allowance because I think the annual allowance, the, the, the maximum amount you can put in in any one year, I think is already quite penal for the, for the um, higher earners anyway. Um, you know, the fact that I've got uh, quite a few clients where they're in their 40s and even some that are in their 30s that have just started earning good money, you know, they've had maybe got been promoted to director and suddenly had a, a big pay rise. And they've gone from not being able to afford to put that much money into pensions because they've got a family to then suddenly being able to afford it and not being able to because the tax relief was all suddenly gone. And, you know, that's I think that's something that perhaps was targeting people that were, you know, very successful for long periods. But actually, I'm seeing it being really quite damaging to a lot of clients. And I think that the lifetime allowance for those clients is never, ever going to be an issue. Because they're never going to be able to put enough money into their pension to get anywhere near it. I think whatever your political views are, you've still got to incentivize people to go out there, to run businesses, to create jobs, to move the economy forward. And I think some of the measures 
are are being too punitive on on a certain group of individuals who aren't necessarily the the super wealthy, but are, are generally more wealthy than than, than most people yeah. as well. And I think that's why it's politically easier to to attack them than 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 the rest of the, the tax base. And that leads us nicely onto the next question, which is going to be. How would that change if Jeremy Corbyn, or how would that be exaggerated, maybe, if Jeremy Corbyn became Prime Minister? I think I think that that would just continue in, in the same vein. Uh, I think I, I could see a lot of people arguing the a Jeremy model where it maybe follows the Nordic system of higher taxation, and actually, if you look at those government um, funded schemes over there and their auto enrolment, they, they do tackle the pensions issue a lot better. Um, I think you'll see higher taxation above the 85 grand uh, sector uh, considerably and probably bringing in line what people um, earning over 150 are experiencing now that will probably come down to that, that better one the government and it's interesting isn't it because my what I've read shows that every time they increase the uh, the higher rate of taxation, the total tax take for the country actually goes down. So it, what, what I find frustrating is when, when people, it seems to me that decisions like that to tax the rich more actually contrary, it's actually a negative impact to the country, but it's a vote-winning strategy. Yeah. It was very recently demonstrated quite well, wasn't it? Was it Macron in France who put the higher rate of tax up to 80%? And pretty much drove all those taxpayers out of the country. Absolutely. Um, and you would, you know, I mean, still while we're in Europe, you you could quite easily imagine that a lot of the wealthy bankers um, can do their job from France or Germany or from Switzerland mm-hmm. quite quickly up sticks and, and, and move abroad to, to save themselves 10, 20, 30%. They, they have the ability and the financial um, ability to gain from doing so, but also... They have the ability to pay for advice, pay for specialist tax advice to structure themselves differently, whereas Joe Bloggs can't do that. And actually, that, that's why you see it happening. You increase the tax and people just find a way to um, get around it. So uh, you're not really solving the issue. I think people want value for money from, from the taxation system. And I don't mind paying a bit more tax if I receive more services from it. I think that's, I think that's the key political issue is I am being taxed a lot, but... What am I getting for, for my taxes being paid? Um, I think lots of people would potentially happily pay an extra 1% or 2% if they got a better NHS or they got better childcare benefits and allowed families to work more and that would benefit the country as a whole. But it's, it's, politics is always short-term. It's a four- or five-year cycle. So. Mm. And do, then do you think, think, well, think certain institutions would still be penalised in a post-Brexit world? Because, I mean, if some of the bigger players do end up moving offshore, then theoretically there may be less to target here. Yeah. Well, financial services provides 11% of GDP, which is a considerable amount of the UK's economy. If you lose that via Brexit to Frankfurt, then that will mean even higher taxation. And actually, although those very wealthy people are here making a lot of money and there's a lot of complaints about the 1%. They, they do pay tax, they do 
you know, it's better they're paying tax here than somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and coming back to Jeremy Corbyn and maybe mixing that in with Brexit, what other th- other than maybe higher taxation, what would be the impact on? Would there be any other impacts that you'd see on individuals and their finances? I think, well, I mean, obviously Jeremy Corbyn, there's been a lot in the press about him targeting the, the bankers, especially. Um, whether that's then going to filter down to people at the other end of the spectrum, we'll just have to, just have to wait and see how we've thought. Um, but he's got to get into a position of power first anyway for all of this to, yeah. to come to fruition. But I mean, I, I do wonder if, if through higher taxation, through a, lot, a lack of confidence, I think if Jeremy Corbyn got in, I think there would be a... Uh, across the world there would be uh, lower confidence in the UK that surely to me would would potentially uh, create a, a fall in the markets uh, and potentially affect our currency as well uh, sterling and as a result that would be hitting people's pockets wouldn't it that would be impacting the value that's in their pensions and the value that's in their investments and how much it costs them to go abroad I think I think that's the logical um, sort of way to go, but I think if anything, politics has set, shown you over the last few years that you wouldn't have expected the Brexit and the scenario we're in, um, the way the vote went and the scenario we're in now, and you wouldn't have expected Trump and the subsequent impact to the market. And I think markets are actually quite resilient, and and that's not me saying I'm pro Corbyn or not uh, or, or any political persuasion but I think they are more resilient than people think it's just the volatility in the meantime and it's how you and your finances cope with that volatility I think that's I think that's the key question to be asking yourself we can't predict what's going to happen so be best prepared as, as you can and if and if you decided to unwind uh, some of the privatisation that's happened over the years uh, how would that impact people's pockets? It's hard to say. I mean, when you look at uh, rail fares back in the 1980s, um, I must confess I was pretty young about then. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I look at train fares today and they're phenomenally expensive. So you wonder whether or not with a little bit of state support, train fares and things like that might actually might actually come down or at least stop going up quite as quickly as they have been. Um, I think... I think, as Tom says, it's highly likely tax rates are going to, to increase and tax relief um, from pensions and then more esoteric investments such as EIS and VCTs would be reduced. Um, corporation tax, I think Jeremy Corbyn's already stated, would, would start to rise very quickly. Um, and I think these things will all, all have, um, will all certainly make wealthy, wealthier people feel less wealthy but and and as with any socialist government they should the plan would be to make the less wealthy feel more wealthy mm. um so I, I suppose that's how things would work and whether or not the nhs would, would become better funded um quite probably um so yeah I, that's what i think that's a good this point that's a good take place to take this next do we think the NHS, I mean, obviously the NHS is a massive political football. Do we think the current structure of the NHS with um, some people buying into private medical insurance, do we think that's the right way that, you know, how... how Personally, I would massively promote that. I think if you look at some foreign countries such as, um, what the, such as Singapore, who's got a huge insurance-based scheme, Australia have a brilliant insurance-based scheme, America have an insurance-based scheme, although on questions whether or not it's managed 
quite as it might be. Um, I think there is, there is, there's certainly, there's enough wealth in the country for the wealthier to pay some and actually want to pay something towards their health. And if that takes some pressure off the NHS, that's probably a good thing. Um, conceivably, the other way to do it is to add one or two percent on to um, income tax in some way. But I think it, that will only sit comfortably with the population if you can see that one or two percent then being given directly to the NHS. So you see, this is why I've got a tax increase and that's exactly where it's gone. Um, Surely it's better to give tax relief on those willing to come out of the system in, in that respect. Then. And then the wealthier that they see it as a benefit because of they're reducing their taxation and you're reducing the, the net cost on the... Yeah on the um, yeah. government as a whole. But at the moment, the wealthy aren't getting a tax benefit for buying private medical insurance, and yeah. many still are. So if you then give them a tax break to come out, you've got to generate some more tax from somewhere else, haven't you? But arguably, which one is more expensive? I think I think that's it. And uh, you look at long-term costs, I think the whole point of raising taxes on beer, spirits, cigarettes and things like that is to make it a direct tax on those individuals that are going to um, to to make use of those facilities when they've um, uh, used them. I think the problem in the NHS is um, the concept is good, but you can't go do the same thing that you've been doing for 30 years and expect different results at the end of it. You've either got to choose to fund it better or come up with a new system. And the problem is, is depends how well it's run. If you applied uh, capital efficiency in in an investment bank to perhaps um, the way the NHS works, then arguably you may make it more efficient. I was uh, a keen um, uh, person to keep the NHS, but it's got to be run better and run more efficiently for it to keep its purpose in the UK. Do you guys see many clients having private medical insurance? Obviously, when it's provided by a company, they have it. But the people that aren't in a, in a, have a, they are in employment where it's part of the benefits package, do you see many clients... I know we don't give advice on it, but do you see many clients with it? No. No, no. Unless they've had it before and then use continuing cover or something like that. I would agree. I think the other thing about it is, though, that what it tends to be very good for, private mental insurance, that is, is... Um, perhaps for physiotherapy or um, seeing psychiatrists and stuff like that. What it doesn't pay out for is you go and break your leg. And so it means that for a lot of those common injuries, you twist your ankle, um, break an arm skiing or something like that, you're still a burden on the NHS. You don't take that complaint to your private health provider. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of almost for the the luxury side of it that that you use your private medical insurance. But if you've got cancer... You're still, you're still with the NHS, absolutely. Um, giving birth, actually. It's still yeah. a bit on the NHS. Yeah. I think that's the same view of, I think, in today's economy, people feel like times are tight and they'd rather spend it on other things. And it's a bit like life insurance and better quality critical illness care. People are um, less likely to want to pay for it because they'd rather spend it on a nice new car or... Uh, or on a holiday and I get that mentality but I think people need to start viewing it as it is a personal tax and uh, view it as a tax if you want those kind of benefits so in some ways people saying oh, I'd quite happily pay one or two percent extra tax but don't really want to go and pay the premiums for 
insurance to take it on board themselves probably tells you quite quite a bit about yeah. whether it's all waffle or not. I think it's I think it's it's just something that's not very widely promoted and maybe having a state structure where you opted in or opted out and a, and a tax incentive to do so would at least bring it to people's attention more. So um, I think that would be I think it would be sensible. I think aside from like a tax point of view, it's just a common perception of just falling back on the state. So hence why you know again so it's not people don't see from an income tax perspective or any tax you know, tax relief available for paying into it. People wouldn't necessarily jump into it just for that. I think it's just they know the NHS is there, and as you say, Henry, if you do break your leg or whatever, sprain your ankle, then they know that they can just get on the road. It might not be as obviously it's not going to be as efficient as if you had the care, um, you know, personally. But then that kind of tallies on to how a lot of people these days don't have sufficient private pension savings and so on because they think, oh, you know, the state will look after me. And actually, it is, as you said earlier on, it's a top up, it's meant to be there to, to boost, you know, what you've managed to save yourself. Um, but I think, I think that's probably part partly to do with it in that people don't perceive much of a need because the state's there to, for them to fall back on them. But, but also enrolment has had a dramatic effect on people's pension saving. You know, the, the opt-out percentage that they expected was far higher than they've actually seen because people are reluctant to take action. If you it, Like stakeholder failed because they said we make really cheap pensions and everybody will join. And nobody did because they had to take action to join. With also enrolment, they had to take action to leave, mm. and as a result, they stayed in. People take the, the path of least resistance, don't they? And I think mm. at the moment, the path of least resistance is we'll just rely on the NHS and uh, not bother with private medical insurance. I think an auto-enrolment scheme or similar approach to private medical would be would be really good. I think um, the problem is it, uh, it will get viewed politically very mm. differently as though they're trying to privatise things. And Absolutely. you've only got to look at the Brexit vote and what they wrote on the side of a bus to show you how much the NHS is a political football. So then it comes back to which are we better, which are we trying to do? Change the country for the better, or are we trying to win votes? Which is the constant yeah. battle that we seem to have. It's you know, that's why the pension system has been changed. We had pension simplification in two thousand six, and then it's been the pension complica- complication ever since then to try to get back to where it was originally. I think if you get if you look at those Nordic countries I mentioned earlier, yes, they do pay higher taxation, and uh, I guess they have a different outlook. But they've also highly come up on the tables of who are the most happiest people in, in the country. I'm not one for paying more tax personally, but I'd, I'd rather get better value for what what I receive, um, and just like anyone would do. It is difficult, isn't it? Because I, I, you know, I think there's. There is need for massive tax reform. You know, obviously there is there is it would make sense now to do a proper reform of income tax and national insurance, get that all it's all one it's all one tax, isn't it? So that could be consolidated. I for me, probably the close to the top of the list is business rates. You know, we're seeing the high street decimated uh, because you know shops like Maplin exactly are closing because they're paying massive business rates. And what do they get for those business rates? They don't get their bins taken, they don't get anything for it, and yet Amazon can sell exactly the same thing online, not pay business rates, and, and you know make far more money on the back of it, and actually often not even pay tax in the country that they're selling the goods in. Yeah. Um, and that, that, for me, is where there needs to be massive tax reform, but there's the, the politics around it seems to stop it happening. 
I think I saw an article not so long ago where you could actually solve the NHS's funding problem just by reforming VAT and the reform on VAT has a much bigger impact because it's a tax on everyone across and it's a tax on consumption rather than income. There's lots of wealthy people who don't actually have a lot of income yet have all the assets and can pay for everything and naturally these people who are, like you said earlier, directors who may be quite asset poor because they've been raising a family are actually paying a lot of tax and I think the whole concept of taxation needs to change in how we administer tax and how it's applied and in what circumstances. I think they're, they're the bigger issues and politically it would be, it's harder and administratively it's harder but you need to find a way of working in the 21st century really. Yeah, you do. And uh, yeah, inheritance tax is the perfect example. We're going to cover inheritance tax in more detail on a, on a future fit finance session. But, um, you know, they, you could eliminate inheritance tax and with a small increase to VAT, I think it was half a percent increase to VAT, you could take exactly the same tax take. It's and struggle from a political point of view, though, to pass down that. Correct, because mm-hmm. it'd be just seen as a tax break for the rich. Yep. Of course, the richer the people are buying the things that they pay VAT on, so actually it wouldn't be, but then it would be a tax on consumption, not on success. And that, for me, would be a, a more that would be a fairer taxation system. I think that might also solve some of the personal debt issues. And it, we're in a very consumer-led economy where people just spend willy-nilly. And actually, if you made it in some ways harder to spend frivolously and buy things you don't need because the taxation on it is is higher. Yes, you probably have some inflation and other things, but I think you'd have a fairer tax system overall. And people would feel that when they go to work, they get more of what they take home, rather than it all being, I think everyone just focuses on income tax, there's a whole load of other taxes. Mm. Do you think if interest rates move up more quickly than currently being supposed to move up over the coming years, though, that would affect consumption rates? Because if you've got interest rates suddenly trending back where they were 10 years ago, up at, what, 4 or 5%, people aren't going to be going out and buying new cars on credit. Um, I think um, one of the key things the MPC is following is consumer credit and particularly car finance and you see the amount of new cars on on the road today because it's cheap and easy to get finance and I think as soon as those rates go up, A, car buying is a good barometer of the economy as a whole but also expenditure, it's very easy to get 0% credit card or pay little on a credit card and money's cheap at the moment which is good it pumps the economy but you, it could I think they refer to people as the jams I think if you suddenly have interest rates go up and people are using credit to get by in their daily lives I think that'll have a big impact on, on if it rises too fast. And looking a little bit further afield what can people I don't want to get too much into the politics of you know, the US or Europe but Obviously, we've got the trade wars going on with the US and China at the moment, We've got, and US and, and Europe as well. Uh, we've got um, some political unrest in Italy and the, the Eurosceptics being um, uh, pushed, pushed out. Um, but that could potentially only fuel that more. What could people on the ground, people in the UK do with regards to their finances to help make sure that they're impacted as little as possible by these sorts of fluctuations, these sorts of changes overseas? 
think probably reducing their exposure to, to US equity would be a big one. Um, and some of the tariffs that, that Donald Trump was talking about introducing um, could, could potentially lead to, um, lead to, well, I don't want to say market crash, but could affect the US economy. So obviously if you've got investors in the UK who have invested offshore, got a large US equity content, that, that could drastically affect things. Yeah, I think it's I think it's surprising because I think only ended of course last month a lot of people thought Trump might cool down on his rhetoric with regards to the the, the, the import tariffs that he's creating. I think if if anything, um, with regards to your own personal finances, my advice would always be just to have everything really diversified because for a start we didn't know what was going to happen in Italy six months ago, and I think everyone. If I'd asked around this room, is anything going to happen in Italy this year, in January, you said, don't think so. Um, but actually, it turns out it's created a little bit of a commotion. Having said that, the markets rallied soon after the, the new prime minister got sworn in. I think if you go back in time, there is always something that's happening, whether or not it's trade war against China or um well, Brexit or um, Chinese growth slowing to only 6% a year or whatever it is. And all these things take ticks off the FTSE 100 or global indices, but then it comes bouncing back. And the way to protect yourself, of course, is diversification. So it's holding some of the stocks in all the various markets around the world. Quite agree with what Toby says. So short term, probably US stock is, is the one that's likely to be most affected by Trump, and potentially with the the peace that seems to be unraveling in Europe, in Spain, just recently in Italy as well, perhaps European stocks are, are at their peak for the time being. So do you think some of these, um, if you wanted to have a reduced exposure to US, you wouldn't want to avoid the US, would you, because you'd still want a properly diversified portfolio? But some of these funds and structures where you have a fixed amount, whether it be a lifestyling type, um, you know, a fixed asset allocation model through passives like the, the sort that, that, that um, Vanguard and Dimensional would do, uh, uh, that have a fixed amount in the US, are you saying that those sorts of things are, uh, are potentially less useful because the, the investment manager isn't going to be sitting there and going, well, let's be a bit less in the US at the moment or a bit less in Europe at the moment. Is that yeah, what I mean? well, I think that's actually right. I think, I mean, that's it. From a, so from a passive strategy whereby you have to take a certain percentage of what the Dow Jones is currently invested in is perhaps not the right way to do it. And in a diversified portfolio, being able to take a tactical approach and slightly reduce your exposure to the US to Europe and perhaps increase it to some emerging market um, equity options might be the way to do things at the moment, um, as is always the case, you know. And, and I think keeping it keeping it diversified, but keeping an eye on the underlying asset allocation you have within your pension portfolio is is always a sensible. Or your manager is taking those assets is always a sensible call for action. I think um, I agree with Henry there. I think the only problem with emerging market potentially is then you've got exposure to um, to dollar risk mm. if um, if anything did happen with, with the US economy. 
Um, but a weakening dollar at the moment would potentially be better considering they're, they're quite debt laden in emerging markets and borrowing dollars. So yeah. Trump's rhetoric on the, he wants to re- reduce the value of the dollar is only going to make it easier for them to borrow. Be better. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I suppose so funds that have done well, you know, funds that, for example, have, that have got high US exposure have done well in the past. So people have, uh, are encouraged to keep them. Uh, but actually, maybe those sorts of funds are the sorts of ones that you want to move away from, but then to have a more tactical, a more dynamic, a more fluid asset allocation so that you um, can can you know, run away from the bits that scare you most and run towards the safer bits, whether that be emerging markets or whether that be fixed interest or, you know, or even property. I think the, um, the US economy has, has been overpriced for for quite some time, um, but in general, on, on a global scale, we've, we've seen a bullish market um, for quite a while now. Um, with regards to fixed interest, I suppose the irony being there, bond yields have actually, you know, we've seen negative bond yields. The whole point of including fixed interest would usually be to diversify the portfolio, but also to provide an element to um, to get, you know, that, that steady in- income stream within the portfolio. Usually, for the more cautious investors, we'd look to include a larger proportion of that, purely because um, bonds and fixed interest investments are usually deemed to be a, a safer investment. But where you've got a negative yield, it's hard to justify moving from a higher risk or deemed to be higher risk equity content into an asset which is producing a negative yield at the moment. Um, it seems to be um, things that turn on their head a little bit. So it needs careful the asset allocation needs careful for i think on that note i think um we've just come to the end of our first fit finance session i hope uh you guys as listeners have enjoyed it and got some value out of it um we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing this on a monthly basis going forward and uh, next month we're going to be talking about defined benefit pension schemes there's a lot of press at the moment around uh, whether you should, you know, the advice that people are being given that are in final salary pensions and we want to have a conversation around, uh, I see some firms are now saying that they're not going to give advice on this at all uh, and so this is a really, a real hot potato at the moment. So tune in next month to the Fit Finance session uh, on uh, defined benefit stroke final salary pension schemes. Thank you very much for listening and we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon.